listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 147. Today, we are going to talk about the retail apocalypse, well, round 12. What does it mean for working people that, yet once again, a major chain is closing its stores around the country? Should we be terrified? And next episode, we'll be off to Labor Notes. Come see us in Chicago, April 6th through 8th. But first, the news. Last episode, we talked with striking West Virginia teachers and have touched on other teacher actions recently, too. We will have a bit more on this subject later today as well. And we are, of course, continuing to follow developments in Arizona, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, where rallies are ongoing. As I record this on Wednesday, several Kentucky school districts are closed as teachers rally at the state capitol against pension cuts. Arizona teachers are also gathering at the state capitol. And Oklahoma teachers who are on spring break are spending the week lobbying legislators. But this week, we also saw a teacher strike in Jersey City, New Jersey, which also centered on health care costs. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was famously an enemy of unions and teacher unions in particular. During his utter and complete failure of a presidential run, he said that unions, quote, deserved a punch in the face. And he did more than threaten. In 2011, the state passed a law taking teachers' health care off of the bargaining tables and instead putting it in the hands of a state board. A sunset provision in this law supposedly meant that the issue could go back into bargaining eventually. Last year, the teachers' premiums went up 13%. Teachers have said this has meant a cut in their actual take-home pay. This probably sounds familiar by now. Chapter 78 relief, Chapter 78 is the name of this provision, um, for healthcare costs has been a key issue for teachers in the state. So Jersey City Education Association President Ron Greco said that building conditions have been awful, adding to teachers' frustrations. A lot of these buildings are loaded with vermin and dirt and mold and no soap and towels in the bathroom, so it all compounds the problem and the frustration level, he said. The union in the district had met more than 20 times to negotiate. Their contract had expired in September. The strike lasted one day. A judge had ordered teachers back to the classroom, citing a New Jersey law that technically bans public sector strikes. But the rumor that I heard, anyway, is that they were willing to stay out until a deal was reached. And a deal was reached. Teachers are back in school as the settlement is being voted on, full details of which we do not have yet, but which is said to include an agreement on salaries and those all-important and healthcare costs. It is telling that healthcare is at the base of so many of these teacher union fights alongside generally low pay and the same working conditions we hear about across the country. Big class sizes, crumbling infrastructure, teachers spending out of pocket on supplies, and general disrespect from public officials. Who will be the next to strike? We will keep you posted here at Belabored. And if you are one of those teachers considering or going on strike, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and tweet at us at hashtag belabored. And we will be joining discussions on this subject at Labor Notes in Chicago. Remember last year when that mega tax cut bill passed Congress and corporate executives nationwide joined in celebration to make America great again by making the rich richer with a tiny jubilee for the rest of us? Yes, to spread the wealth, they promised one-time bonuses to workers at many of their companies as a symbol of their noblesse oblige. And Disney workers in Florida and California were in line to receive a cool $1,000 bonus. Well, that turned out to be not quite true for the union workers who are currently locked in a battle over wage hikes in their pending contract talks. 
As their discussions over raise rates are in limbo, Disney is withholding their bonuses, leaving about 40,000 workers in Anaheim and Orlando stranded while their non-union peers get rewarded for their ahem, cooperation with the bonus that was promised. In other words, stand up for your labor rights and get your pay docked. So just as Disney was dealing with the rising outrage among their union workers, who are represented by Unite here and others, the Economic Roundtable, a think tank in California, came out with a scathing report on the terrible working conditions at Anaheim's Disneyland. Through surveys of union workers, workers who generally have fairer contracts and better working conditions than the more contingent workers who are not in their union, researchers found that although Disneyland is one of California's major tourist attractions, drawing some $3 billion in revenue annually, the union workers surveyed, these are the gift shop staff, the janitors, servers at concession stands, hotel cleaners, and other service positions. They earn only about $11.15 an hour in a typical work week. That amounts to a marked decline in real wages since 2000. Paradoxically, those workers may fall even further behind other workers in California because wages across the region are climbing steadily thanks to key minimum wage reforms brought on by the Fight for 15 that will, in the coming years, phase in a statewide minimum wage of $15 an hour. So within that gap, gender and racial disparities also persist. Compared to white workers, who earn about $14.80 hourly, Asian American and Latino workers earn just about $12.90 and $12.50 hourly. Although nearly all of the Anaheim workers reported that Disney was their primary source of income, barely half of the respondents said they were able to actually obtain full-time work. So that means the vast majority of the Disney workers who need childcare services have trouble covering their basic household expenses as a result. About the same portion struggle with food insecurity. Even though plenty of workers are on Disney's insurance plan, that doesn't mean they're actually healthy. About a third of workers reported having to forego other basic expenses to pay their monthly premiums. And many of those insured workers still remain priced out of needed services and medicines. And over in Orlando, conditions are arguably just as problematic. Their base wage currently starts around $10 an hour. And the union workers who are in contract negotiations are stuck in an impasse over future raises, having just voted to reject Disney's latest contract proposal. And that's where their bonus is being held hostage. So back to that bonus. Really, $1,000 is just a drop in the bucket. What they really need is real justice at work, and they need fair wages year-round. Otherwise, the happiest place on earth will continue to be a bad place to work, with or without their special bonus. Back in December, on episode 141, I talked about the union drive among JetBlue flight attendants who are making inroads into the notoriously non-union low-cost airline. The flight attendant I spoke with at the time told me of the company encouraging customers to spy on them of long hours and low pay. Quote, I helped build this company. I would like to help continue to build this. I just don't want it to be on flight attendants' backs. I want us to have a seat at the table, she said. In the midst of Me Too, sexual harassment was also a concern for many of the flight attendants, who connected the company's encouraging of customers to report on them with their treatment that they faced from those customers. Flight attendants, notably, were the workforce in which sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild conducted her famous study on emotional labor, and that is certainly still a problem with these jobs. 
Well, those JetBlue flight attendants are getting their vote. Ginger Adams Otis at the New York Daily News reports that the flight attendants began voting on Monday and will continue through April 17th. 4,800 flight attendants in total are voting, and 2,200 of them are those based right here in New York at JFK Airport. If the flight attendants vote to join Transport Workers Union, they will be the second bargaining unit at the company, the pilots organized in 2014. And we will, of course, keep you up to date on the results. A few weeks ago, as you recall, West Virginia teachers upended all expectations and captured the nation's attention when they rejected the state's initial contract proposal and continued their tense statewide strike in a full-on wildcat. Over on the other side of the Atlantic, we saw a similar phenomenon unfolding across the United Kingdom on an even bigger scale recently, as workers across 60 university campuses held out on picket lines after braving weeks of uncertainty in their labor negotiations, hostility from the administration, and the bitter cold of the UK winter. They chose to reject a proposal for a contract after realizing that it fell far short of their demands for secure pensions. And the resulting shortfall of billions of pounds would amount to a £10,000 cut in their annual retirement benefits. So they made the dramatic decision to let the strike keep on going, rallying for days longer behind the slogan, No Capitulation. At first, many faculty took to Twitter to express their frustration with the initial proposal. And slowly, as frustration built, the phrase became a hashtag and then became a movement. According to Wired UK, they quote Joe Grady, professor of industrial relations at Sheffield University, quote, much of the discussion that evening and late through the night coalesced under one hashtag, hashtag no capitulation. There's been a bit of a joke throughout the strike that we couldn't even decide on the one hashtag. There was UCU strike, strike for UCU, USS strike. It was ridiculous. When this no capitulation solidified, it was a unifying message. It was speaking to the employers and the negotiators. It was quite a rallying cry. And later on, as the protest built and the pressure rose on the union leadership to refuse the compromise on the key disputes, including sustainability of the faculty's pensions and better working conditions for all staff, All the while, they were organizing on the ground to keep the rank-and-file staff workers, the public, and the students on their side. And after an unprecedented two weeks on strike, Wired reports, by 4 o'clock it was confirmed that the UCU would reject the deal. One professor, Ed Brooksby, said, It's unusual for members to defeat the leadership, for them to be taken by surprise from a movement from below. It feels like the leadership are running to catch up. For now, the pension showdown is ongoing, and in the past few days there have been more threats of ongoing strikes at various campuses. But by refusing to capitulate on the pensions deal, the union workers made a historical show of solidarity, and more strike actions could be coming down the pipeline, with campus workers nationwide now emboldened, knowing that they don't have to just take what's handed to them, they can resist. So you've heard about the big closure of America's favorite toy store, Toys R Us. Uh, So what does it all mean for retail? And are analysts right when they predict 
the impending retail apocalypse. We talked to Carrie Gleason, a longtime labor advocate who's been working on the front lines of the other end of the retail crisis with the workers. She's part of the Center for Popular Democracy, and she leads their Fair Work Week initiative. And she's going to talk about the real struggles that retail workers face in the job today and their ongoing struggle for workplace justice. So... Comment a bit about the big retail story in the news um, with Toys R Us shutting down. And there's been a lot said about the so-called retail apocalypse. Can you talk about how real that is and uh, what it might mean for ordinary people? Yeah, I'm glad to, to speak about the latest volatility in the retail sector. What happened with Toys R Us is a really good example of why... The disruption in retail is not inevitable. And in the in, in beginning of the store closings last year, everyone was just pointing to Amazon and talked about the retail apocalypse and the, the crash of the retail sector. And, and at the end of last year, retail jobs still grew and people started to actually dive in a little bit deeper and try to look at some of what was happening in these companies that were failing. And Toys R Us is the best example of what's really happening in the retail sector um, in terms of financialization. So Toys R Us did not need to fail. As of January of this year, the company still um, had 20% of the toy industry. Um, It was a viable company. It was still bringing in $11 billion in annual profits. What was holding the company back was the massive amount of debt that it had from a leverage buyout um, by Bain Capital and KKR and Bernardo Realty Trust. And so instead of investing all of those profits into innovation, into competing with e-commerce, into making their stores more of an experience, they put all of that money, $400 million a year, into servicing its debt. And that is why Toys R Us failed. And so it's really Wall Street to blame for why America's kids don't have a toy store. Um, and um, and it doesn't have to be happening, right? Like I, there are many forces at play right now in retail. It is these forces of financialization. It is the growing corporate monopoly of Amazon. Um, it is the threat of automation. There's a lot of different forces at play that are impacting the future of retail jobs, um, but there's a lot we can do about it and it's it's not inevitable. It feels like it goes in sort of spurts, like every few months or so, um, there's another wave of these stories. So I wonder if you could talk about like whether any of these previous predictions have come true and the connection between this and the sort of also periodic robots are taking our jobs panic. So it is true that technology is having an impact on retail jobs. Cashiers are getting replaced by self-checkout kiosks. Um, you saw the Amazon Go stores opened where people just had an app and walked out of the store with the products um, that they wanted to take home. Automation is going to have an impact on, on retail employment in the future. There are um, a range of projections on the impact of automation, um, but I think there's some amount of consensus that roughly uh, six to seven million retail jobs will likely be automated. 
But a lot of what we're seeing is that there's like tasks within retail jobs that are getting automated. So it's not that we won't need retail workers anymore. It's just that they'll be doing different things at work. And what I'll say about the broader forces, I mean, it's all, there's tons of forecasting and predictions that happening. I think the one thing that there is consensus on is that there is a lot of volatility and it is very difficult to project what is going to happen. Um, and I think that is a part of why some investors are choosing to bankrupt companies rather than doing the work to, to build out long-term viable retail businesses. The volatility is definitely having an impact on, on the investment, but the truth is consumer demand is consistent. It's growing. Every e-commerce business is also looking into brick and mortar that to get to the sort of um, last mile delivery, you need to have physical locations in dense urban markets. And so what we're seeing is that there's a blending of happening between brick and mortar and online retailing, and it's not that one is taking over the other. Yeah, that's a really interesting point when we think about what happens with these, like, what was it, the Amazon bookstore? And it was like, great, Amazon helps to kill a bunch of local retail bookstores and then opens a retail bookstore. And Exactly. It strikes me as sort of connected to the thing that happened with Walmart, where like Walmart would open a store in an area and a lot of other retail would close and then the Walmart closes. I guess the question I want to get to here is this question of these big consolidated, I mean, multinational, but also sort of multi, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, that sell all sorts of things and do all sorts of things, companies that are essentially unaccountable at this point. Malcolm Harris wrote a piece comparing Amazon to a planned economy itself. And so connecting that back to the the question of like Bain Capital running Toys R Us out of business, I guess the thing I want to ask is like, how do we even think about confronting these massive giant corporations and regulating in any way this kind of behavior? It is for sure a challenge. Um, Amazon is a corporate monopoly like we have never experienced before. It is far more than an e-commerce retail business. We know that Amazon controls 44% of the world's cloud computing capacity. And we know that it's displacing and taking control of markets all across its supply chain. And so it's the forces of corporate concentration are huge and it is weakening the entire economy and creating opportunities for private equity firms to come in and having big corporations like Amazon take so much control of the market while they're also investing massively in technologies to automate this work, it is overwhelming, right? I do think though, Amazon was created by lagging public policy. We have antitrust laws that exist. We do have regulations that have tried to rein in unaccountable Wall Street investments. There is a lot that we can do. All of what is happening right now to the retail workforce and to local retail economies are the result of a series of decisions you know, around public policy that has enabled all of these companies to operate that they do. And so what we're seeing right now is that actually a lot of communities 
are starting to really feel this impact when their mall shutters or, you know, when Amazon took over Macy's in downtown Seattle, when we saw this wave of store closings in communities that really need these jobs. Um, just as a to pause for a second to understand this impact, over 100,000 people lost their jobs last year. It was by far mostly women who lost these jobs in states like Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And so when we talk about the impact of all of this disruption in retail, it's not just a jobs problem, it's a democracy problem. We're seeing many of these, of the people that we've been talking to who've lost their jobs recently, they used to work in factories and then the, the, the mall comes in and they start to work in the retail economy. And then when the retail industry shuts down in their community, there isn't anything left. And so it's worrisome, but it's not, it is a solvable problem. And I think that as we're seeing the massive debt kind of come home and have massive amounts of impact on the viability of retail companies in the in the years ahead, and we see automation start to be felt more in, in frontline stores, and we see Amazon continue to expand, I think we're going to see more political will to actually move some of these solutions forward so that we can have an economy that's accountable to people. Yeah. When you said there reminds me of the fact that the Homestead Steel Mill in um, Western Pennsylvania is now a mall. Exactly. Yeah. And now malls across the country are going completely empty because no one goes to them anymore. But just to broaden this out a little bit, I mean, you, you talked about how retail ties into these broader trends of um, precarity in in the uh, in the workforce, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about what makes retail jobs so emblematic. I mean, it it may be seen as a sunset industry by some uh, analysts, but on the other hand, the struggles that they go through every day as low wage workers in the service industries um, and who is doing these jobs uh, speaks very much to broader trends that we're seeing getting worse, if anything, in the economy. So uh, talk about who's doing these jobs and, and uh, what their conditions are like. So retail salesperson is the most common occupation in America. And what we're seeing is that that job is still growing. And what we're seeing is that there are massive retail, there are retail industries across the country in key states like Nevada and Washington state, where they're still seeing growth in the retail industry. But we are seeing, we are seeing a decline across the country. And the forces that we just described are very, very real. Um, but, but still, you know, 16 million people work in retail. It's one in 10 private sector workers in America are employed in retail. About half are women, 35% are people of color. Uh, what we're seeing is that some sectors um, employ more women and more people of color. The reason why the retail job losses were felt mostly by women is because apparel stores, department stores, cashier jobs were the ones that were lost. Um, and I think that who the retail worker is matters to the public debate. I, if we saw this kind of disruption in the retail sector for white middle class men, we would see a lot more action on the federal level. And I think that we're seeing the real impact, what we saw in the last election, the fact that we haven't done more for this workforce is really being felt across the country. 
Speaking of the role of technology, what you noted earlier about Amazon as this new corporate leviathan, um, I, I think that also speaks to some of the dilemmas that we're seeing in the retail industry with job losses and sort of the de-skilling of labor. Um, and, and can you talk about the, the rise of online shopping in general and how that's affecting working conditions for people, um, you know, maybe if they're not even directly in retail, they're certainly part of the supply chain. I mean, we, we've already seen in many cases what Amazon warehousing is doing to warehouse workers. Um, so can you talk more about the role of um, technology and not not exactly automation of jobs, but the, the, the movement of business online and what that's doing to the whole supply chain that these workers are part of? Sure. So part of why we're seeing a growth in retail jobs for men, but not women is because of this shift to e-commerce, where most of the jobs that are being created are in warehouses. A significant portion of the workforce in warehouses are women. There's That's like a myth that women are not working in these warehouses for Amazon and other e-commerce businesses. But still, it's, it's, the e-commerce business is, is still majority men working in this sector. Those jobs are very difficult jobs, um, you know, just to get more specific in terms of the reality of what it means to work in a warehouse. Um, it's incredibly physical labor that is timed down to the second. People are not able to take breaks. The hours are very long and the pay is lower than what you should than what uh, people typically get paid in warehouses um, in other parts of the economy. And so what we're seeing is people who've moved from a, a retail store into a retail warehouse actually don't, maybe they'll get paid a dollar more per hour, but they don't stay at that job very long because the work is so incredibly grueling. And so we're not, we're seeing, you know, it's just a new growth in the retail sector of a high turnover workforce that doesn't have to you know, be working in jobs that are so tough. The, the jobs could be very different. They could be structured in a way that are more sustainable and healthier for the workforce. But because that workforce doesn't have a voice, um, the company is not feeling accountable to them. And, and I will say, last year, Amazon became the second largest retailer in America almost overnight. They are now second to Walmart. And so... The future of the retail job is very much what Amazon looks like, and the kind of disruption that we're seeing across the retail sector is a consequence of the corporate monopoly that that company is, and it has huge consequences for workers. In this moment, we now see cities and states that where if you work in a retail store, you can earn $15 an hour, you can have paid family leave, a fair work week, earn sick time, and be a part of an organization that has your back. This disruption in the retail sector is totally upending all of those gains that we've achieved to create family-sustaining jobs, and it is suppressing wages across the economy. Um, many, many companies have really felt this public pressure and said, okay, we're going to become, we're going to start to move towards a good job strategy. And we're seeing some companies persist, target raised wages, even though their earnings were low, but there's only so many companies that are going to do that. And it's, and it's a drag on all of the gains and momentum that we've really been able to achieve to actually make better jobs for, for this workforce. 
Yeah, and and another feature, I guess, is also that a lot of these Amazon warehouses, um, they're they're subcontracted out to these other companies, and so that makes them even less accountable to Amazon itself. Amazon is not the direct employer in most cases. Exactly. Yeah. And they're making the work even more contingent. So so in terms of delivery systems, um, they've you know they're now competing with UPS um, and FedEx to to then have packages delivered by. Um, you know, gig workers and drones. <laughs> so those are, those are, that's a million middle-class jobs that are threatened by Amazon. So retail, of course, is not new in this country. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the sort of the history of labor organizing in retail, why it languished behind manufacturing and what happened on that front when retail began to be a bigger part of the U.S. economy? Okay, so I will I will send you a chart that shows the the decline of retail manufacturing and the massive growth in the retail workforce. You know, I think there is movement in manufacturing. It's 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 a huge part of the American economy still, um, but definitely the largest part of the retail job growth has been in retail and food service and healthcare. America is a service economy today. Um, and there has been a movement to really start to value that work. There is this notion that retail work is not skilled. Yes, for sure, there's this bifurcation between high-end retail companies and uh, more discounted brands. But to compete, many of these companies are now creating services um, and actually are asking um, their workforce to create do much more at work. That is a higher level of customer service, upsells on credit cards, upsells on products, um, because that's what they need to do to compete. And so we're definitely seeing some companies start to really invest in training of their workforce again, um, which is a positive um, as a positive shift for the future of a retail job. Um, I think what we're going to potentially see one, one version of the future is that there's, um, there's a core of good middle-class retail jobs and then um, a large swath of, of highly contingent like app-based workers who are working across companies with um, getting shifts on their phone. Cheerful. That's great. Uh- <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, retail workers unions go back for for several generations, right? Like Bloomingdale's in New York was has been union for something like 70 years. Right. So it's not that this is entirely a non-union field, but that. Well, I guess everything is mostly a non-union field these days. But the the, the thing I'm interested in is sort of the, the way that retail was was seen as as a less important place to organize for the labor movement for quite a long time and then it basically took over the economy no it's a really powerful point and it's not um a new dynamic so you know in the 1920s and 30s um immigrant women who worked at Woolworths occupied their stores and demanded a union and a 40-hour work week and higher wages. And at that point in time, the labor movement even then uh, didn't think that women could organize. And, and so there's a very like, there's a very gendered history in terms of whether or not people thought the retail workforce could be a powerful part of the labor movement. And there is, I still hear all the time, well, it's hard to organize retail workers. They don't care about the jobs. 
Um, and that's just not true. 10% of, of, of the private workforce, as I said, cares, on, cares about these jobs and needs these jobs to support their families. We've been talking to Toys R Us workers across the country. Um, they, these are many places, $16 an hour jobs. There's one uh, couple that we know in California where they both work at Toys R Us. They support their three kids on that job. They just bought a car with that, their, that job at Toys R Us. And um, their family is now facing real economic strain from that store closing. And so, you know, I think in terms of, you know, what we've seen is that we do need new models of organizing. And so I, I know many of the amazing um, union members at Bloomingdale's and Macy's and Zara and H&M, Saks Fifth Avenue, Kroger, Dwayne Reed, you know, there are, there's actually many CVS, there's, there's more and more retail workers that are unionizing than, than they have in the last few decades. And those wins are, are really important now more than ever, because as you think about all these forces that the retail workforce is facing and all of the huge impacts it has on communities and on um, politics and, and local economies, the thing that people need is to feel connected to an organization. They need to feel like they have support to weather all of these changes and that they can be a part of having feedback on what's really going on, that their voice is like being heard um, and people care. And so, you know, for example, the organization United for Respect right now has been doing tons of outreach to Toys R Us workers and is helping them do a petition for severance that now has over 5,000 people calling for um, severance for the, the Toys R Us workers. And what we see online from this workforce is that the fact that so many people are standing with them and care about them right now as they face their job loss is just like really, really meaningful. And we've also just seen that by workers organizing and both making demands on policymakers to raise standards and also making demands on these companies to do it, that actually we can create new models where people have an industry voice and can and can really improve their jobs. We're in this Me Too moment right now, and uh, there's been a lot of focus on gender inequality and along with that issues of sexual violence at work. Um, the retail industry has uh, suffered a, a great deal of that um, on, on both fronts. Um, can you talk about gender wage gaps and issues of sexual harassment and sexual violence in the retail sector? And um, how does this affect low-wage women working in service in a way that is both representative as well as maybe particularly acute in terms of overall gender inequality? Retail jobs in America are among the most dangerous jobs our country has. Uh, it is because it's a public space where anyone can walk in. Um, and, and so we see high rates of violent incidents in the retail workforce. Um, it's a service-oriented job where a lot of women work. And so we do see widespread sexual harassment um, and even assault. And, um, you know, it's been an important moment right now where we think about what companies should be doing. There is a call to action on the retail sector to not make the, the retail sales associate also a security guard. Um, we see a lot of companies don't actually ensure that their workforce has um, has has protection um, as they interface with the public. 
And the BC companies invest a lot more in surveillance into whether or not somebody is smiling when they um, provide service than whether or not the customer is treating the employee with some respect. And so we have, I've heard lots of stories over the years of women that have experienced um, harassment and assault in their retail jobs. And I think the thing that matters most is that they feel like they can speak up and that their company has um, has their back and a plan to address it. And what we've seen across the across many companies in the industry is that they don't they don't bother to train their managers of what to do when um, their employees experience harassment um, or assault in the workplace. And what we see a lot is that it's a he said she said, and the culture of the customer is always right really upends the ability of, of women to be able to say something. And connected to that, you and I have talked before about the the different ways that like the retail, the emotional labor that's demanded of retail workers is policed and surveilled in sort of increasingly creepy ways. And so, um, and obviously that connects back to this issue of the customer is always right and the abuses that entails. Um, but I wonder if you could tell our listeners about some of the ways that you've seen that emotional labor, even like people's appearances and bodies are, are being policed by these retail managers in these, again, pretty low wage jobs. There's a lot of surveillance now in the, in the retail and retail companies. So a cashier will have a camera that's built into the point of sale system. And that will track not only how fast she rings something up, how often does she smile and does she use the right scripts to um, ser- provide service to the customer? And so um, there was one amazing quote many years ago from a Uniqlo worker manager who said, you know, they want you to smile till you go crazy. <laughs> so there's just this like, there's a huge amount of emotional labor that goes into this job. Um, and I think uh, the fact that that is not valued as work as a part of us not valuing the work that women and people of color do every day in the service economy that's racialized and gendered. And so, uh, you know, I know a lot of companies are now starting to talk about, we want to create this experience. You know, they want to enjoy shopping in brick and mortar stores. Well, if somebody doesn't know whether or not they're going to get enough hours that week, they just got harassed. They're not able to get, they got a 20 cent raise. Um, and they can't use their paid sick day because the company's short staffing, it's going to be hard for that worker to create that kind of experience. And so what we're seeing now is that companies will either do the right thing and actually start to make some improvements so that employees feel better at work and there's better morale so that that translates into the experience of employees and their ability to provide, um, do the emotional labor of customer service. Um, or we're seeing companies really just do hyper surveillance and create negative consequences if somebody doesn't smile. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, it's a, it's a very diverse sector. We're seeing the industry respond in a lot of different ways, but, but it's exhausting. Um, and it's, it's, it's physical work, it's emotional work. Um, and people will take out their worst days on retail sales associates. Like people just don't, like, I don't know, like, there's just this, like, thing in America where we think we can treat people in the service economy like crap. And, like, we don't, um, you know, like, we don't recognize them as people that where we need to actually be respectful and that if you're having a bad day, it's not okay to take that on on the person trying to sell you your shoes. All these trends might 
get worse or get different under the Trump administration. Can you talk about some of the recent rollbacks in regulations and legislative moves by the Trump administration, how that might affect retail, especially things that have been going on at the Department of Labor? Yeah, so when the Obama administration um, was was transitioning out, um, there were um, thousands and thousands of, of retail managers that were about to access overtime. And um, because of the moves by the Trump administration, Department of Labor, those um, very, very, very hardworking people um, supporting their families on retail jobs are not getting paid overtime that they work. It is like being a, a, a middle manager um, in the retail sector is um, a very, very difficult job. You earn salary, you work long hours, you are at the whims of the understaffing of the store that you're running. And, and they um, and they deserve overtime. And because of the Trump administration, um, those those workers will not get um, overtime that they have earned. And in addition, um, we are seeing a movement in Congress um, to undermine all of the gains that we've won across in cities and states across the country that would basically preempt and override um all of the city and state laws that give people earned sick time and um, fair work weeks. And so that is very alarming um, that we could see federal preemption. Um, they call it a safe harbor bill. So the idea is like if a company has a, a law around giving people, you know, a, a corporate policy that gives earned sick time, then they don't have to comply with the labor law, um, which is absolutely absurd because um, we all know that Companies don't follow their own corporate policies, um, as the example by all of the efforts by Walmart workers to um, to access their earned sick time. So it's very alarming, and um, you know we're seeing worker centers start to experience um, uh, the like you know receive letters from congressional offices, and um, and you know there's a move to have the you know, Department of Labor and investigate them, you know, and it's just, it's ridiculous <laughs> um, that these organizations that are helping people um, exercise their rights, their legal rights at work, um, providing services, um, should have to waste their time dealing with an investigation from the Department of Labor, especially as the Department of Labor has been absolutely gutted and is being run by people that don't know how to do their job. Now, let's talk about the work that your group does. You've been campaigning with this Fair Work Week initiative in various cities and have made actually some pretty remarkable progress in terms of getting progressive legislation passed that protects retail workers and expands uh, their rights at the job. So can you talk about um, the things that you've been pushing for, like minimum wage hikes and um, fair scheduling laws? and how that is um, alongside regular organizing tactics, how that is one route to greater equity for these workers. Yeah, it's been really tremendous. Um, you know, millions and millions of people across the country have higher wages, um, have, have hours, predictable, stable hours that they can count on, um, have paid family leave, earned sick time. Um, really the the strides that we've made in passing policies that support working families 
has really been tremendous. And that includes, um, you know, states like Arizona that have been um, Republican controlled. <laughs> there was a ballot measure where people, um, you know, voted to to raise wages and and give earned sick time to the to the state's hourly workforce. And so it's been pretty tremendous. And it's a real contrast to um, the moves that's happening in, um, by by Congress and and the the Trump administration. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is that it's not letting up um, since the election. And for example, I run the Fair Work Week initiative and we have cities like Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles making moves to, to adopt Fair Work Week policies. Uh, states like Connecticut and New York and Illinois also following suit. And so, you know, this is, it's pretty remarkable. It's a good indicator of how much um, progressive political power people still have when a labor standard that wasn't really on the map four years ago is now in six cities, two states, and is, and is not letting up steam. Yeah, um, just to um, follow up on that, it, can you describe what um, a, a typical Fair Work Week uh, campaigns demands might be and how that's already being implemented in places like San Francisco. I know that's something that um, many workers on the ground have been organizing around, but, um, you know, why is it important to think about how work is scheduled in addition to how much people are being paid per hour? Yeah. So, so most Americans are, are paid by an hourly wage, 75 million people in the country. So um, I think a lot of Americans really know what it means to have um, stable, predictable hours to have and what that means for their income. Um, the, the erratic, um, the spread of erratic hours, the, the shift to part-time work is really causing, straining the, the incomes of families, causing a lot of volatility in incomes, but also really um, causing a lot of stress for families with kids. I have a four-year-old and I know like having consistency being able to set up routines of taking him to school, make dinner, um, put him to bed is just really, really important. And I know how he behaves when things don't go his way. And so the stress that parents of young kids face is just um, visceral when uh, their schedule changes last minute and they have to go to work or find a neighbor who the kid doesn't know very well, take them to school. Um, and so the Fair Work Week policies are super common sense. Um, Things like if you need someone to be on call, you should pay them. <laughs> that if somebody is going to have to work with less rest between shifts, um, that they should get um, extra compensation because it's more expensive to work overnight or to to work, you know, go home and um, and then show up for work with less than ten hours notice. Um, and so we're seeing cities and states across the country pass policies like providing two weeks advance notice. Um, if an employer wants to change the schedule, um, that's that's fine. Employers still have flexibility with fair work week policies. All they have to do is give somebody an extra hour of pay to compensate them for their flexibility. Pay, as I said, for being on call, for being sent home early. We address the problem of clopenings, which I just described, where someone can decline to work um, with a clopening where they don't get enough rest between shifts, but if they say yes, they, they actually get extra compensation for that. Um, and then the idea that people should have the opportunity to work full time. And, and, and so many employers now will um, 
you know, move almost entirely to a part-time workforce and it's really difficult to get to a full-time job and they just keep hiring more and more and more part-time people that then causes underemployment for everybody. And so the idea is that current workers should have the opportunity to work more hours. And so uh, we've seen cities like San Jose passed a ballot measure where 63% of people voted for the opportunity to work measure that would give part-time workers more hours. Um, And then lastly, you know, there's the idea that a lot of workers won't even ask for a schedule that works for them because they know that they'll face um, negative consequences from their company. And so all of the policies include um, right to request provisions where someone can make a request for a schedule that accommodates their lives um, and not face retaliation. Um, and so it's been, you know, it's been pretty remarkable. I think a lot of policy makers really recognize like you can raise wages, but if hours fall short, that can swallow the gains. Um, You can pass paid family leave, but if um, people are part-time and constantly moving from one job to the next, they may not access that benefit. And so um, having stable, predictable hours is like really key um, to to a good job. And we've seen so often that once, you know, wages are forced to go up, people get their hours cut or, you know, they go to part-time. So um, you can uh, give in one place and take away in another. But um, speaking of which, thank you for... um, for just detailing why uh, the predicted demise of retail is, uh, appears to be premature at this point. Do you have any new campaigns or anything like that that um, people should know about? Yeah, or legislation to watch. We're really excited about um, the movement for um, for a fair work week. Um, there's many cities and states that are um, that are taking on um, that have passed, you know, earn sick time and raise wages, and now are taking on the movement um, to give people a family sustained work week. We also are seeing um, a new effort emerge to address forced arbitration. The fact that, you know, many people when their rights are violated are not able to actually use the full power of the law um, to correct the injustice that they experience at work. And so um, we're, we're really interested in the forced arbitration movement that many um, states are starting to think about policy solutions that would give people more rights to exercise, more ability to exercise their rights. Um, and then we're also you know, really concerned about the role of Amazon and corporate monopolies like Amazon and um, financialization. And so there has been so much um, public concern for losing Toys R Us. There's like generations of families that identify as being a Toys R Us kid. And, um, you know, we're hoping that we can kind of galvanize that love for the company to to actually take on KKR and Bain, who are responsible for um, the devastation of, of Toys R Us. That was Carrie Gleason with the Center for Popular Democracy. You're listening to Belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. At the risk of becoming all teacher strikes all the time podcast, I did want to spend a little time this week talking about Puerto Rico's teachers and their fight for public schools. Monique Doles has a piece at Socialist Worker titled Puerto Rico Teachers Will Strike for Their Schools, and it's worth following this story as well, even if you feel a little inundated with teacher strike stories. As far as we are concerned, that is a good problem to have. 
This Monday, Puerto Rican teachers, members of the Federación de Maestros de Puerto Rico, held a one-day strike to protest legislation that would privatize the public school system on the island. We have talked some about the twin crises in Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria on top of the debt crisis and entirely man-made austerity legislation. Now, six months after the storm, Puerto Rico faces the same type of shock doctrine-style privatization that, as we have discussed many times, devastated New Orleans' schools after Hurricane Katrina. A story in Puerto Rico will be familiar to those who have listened to this podcast, you know, in the last couple of weeks, and certainly to anyone following school reform debates in the U.S. The governor, Ricardo Rossello, has promised to close 307 public schools as pushing legislation that would open up the island's public schools to charterization, as well as inaugurating a voucher system to give public money to pay for private schools. Such private management of public funds, Dole's notes, has already led to rampant mismanagement of post-hurricane reconstruction in Puerto Rico. Dulles writes of Puerto Rico's Secretary of Education, Julia Kelleher, who is neither a Puerto Rican nor an educator, quote, calls for Kelleher's resignation have gained momentum amid a whitefish moment of her own after she arrogantly and insensitively defended a $17 million contract awarded to a private company to teach, quote, values to the school children of Puerto Rico. The deal raised questions about why the teaching of values should be subcontracted to a private company rather than to be seen as a central part of the job of the thousands of unionized school social workers whose livelihoods are under threat because of new legislation. When asked this question, Kelleher's blamed the social workers union for management and leadership problems. Kelleher's do it for the sake of the children stance is galling considering the fact that she has never set foot in a classroom except for her time as an adjunct professor at George Washington University School of Business. End quote. Now, of course, we are here for the rights of adjuncts on this uh, podcast, but maybe not for the rights of adjuncts to privatize entire school systems. And so the teachers who have already worked hard to clean and rehab their own schools to get them reopened after the hurricane have now been raising the alarm about the attacks on their schools and are talking full-scale strike now that the legislation appears to be, to be being pushed through. They have a history of such strikes, including a big one in 2008, and the island has a history of labor militancy against privatization. The struggle in Puerto Rico is an amped-up version of the ones that we've discussed recently spreading across the U.S., and it runs the risk of getting less attention because it's far away. But we should, as many people have already noted, understand that the things that are tested out on people far away in America's, one of America's last remaining colonies, will eventually come home to roost. My pick for this episode is Sick with Worry. A GOP bill to eliminate the public service loan forgiveness program threatens the social work sector by Rhina Lipsitz. While the Trump administration has appointed a slew of corporate evildoers to head the federal agencies that currently run our education and financial systems, believe it or not, there's one small part of the government that actually provides a reward to people who try to do the right thing through these two departments. It's the Bush-era Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program which allows people working in the public sector, such as social workers and teachers, who have worked full-time for 10 years or more and who have completed 120 on-time payments with their student loans, to have the remaining balance forgiven. This little-known program, administered through four eligible federal repayment plans linked to the main federal student loan program, is a crucial financial lifeline for a substantial chunk of the professionals who staff public agencies and nonprofits around the country who serve our communities every day. Currently, the House is considering a bill, deceptively called the PROSPER Act, 
which would eliminate the program that now covers thousands, thousands of student debtors, and they're generally committing about 10% of their incomes per month through this repayment plan. Now, that's just a tiny chunk of the nation's total student loan debt load, but it's worth noting that many of these people have taken a personal pay cut to work in public sector jobs that are historically underpaid, involve massive workloads and tons of stress. They've only grown more stressful over the years as staff and budget cuts and economic crises have really put a strain on our social service sectors. It especially affects social workers and other public servants who have shouldered much of the burden for providing crucial services ranging from nutritional assistance to childcare to mental health counseling to people who have fallen on hard times as a result of recent policies by politicians just like those running the White House right now. They're already the unsung heroes of the social safety net and now they're getting stretched even more to the absolute breaking point as their future finances are put at risk by this bill. Lipsitz reports, Quote, ending PSLF would make it extraordinarily difficult for low-income people to obtain these degrees and significantly harder to recruit educated young people in the high-need fields like social work, where the annual median wage is about $46,900 and 69% of workers are over 35. The demand for social workers, especially in healthcare and social services, is growing, but pays remain stagnant and workers are aging out of the field, unquote. Lipsitz profiles one Columbia University graduate with $100,000 in student debt. She's working as a social worker in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Quote, she works three 13-hour shifts per week in the emergency room of a pediatric hospital. The second job is adjunct faculty in a graduate social work program and spends hundreds of dollars a month on loan repayment. I had to get a second job to make enough money to live, she told me. Discovering she was eligible for PSLF was a big relief. Still, the program is clearly not working as well as it should. The Fed Loan Agency, which services the loans, has a stained track record for issuing deceptive information to borrowers, and in some cases working at odds with the DOE itself. But that's really a problem of subcontracting, another thing that privatization has done to our public sector. But, as Lipsitz notes, critics and defenders alike agree that the program's problems should be addressed, but the borrowers who rely on it want PSLF to be clarified and expanded, not scrapped. In other words, don't end it, mend it. In fact, we don't even know if anyone has ever really had their debt fully forgiven under the program, but they are on a more predictable repayment track. And the fact that they're able to manage payments from month to month better because they're able to plan for the future makes all the difference. They know that their debt won't last until their death, and now their lives are hurtling towards financial hell indefinitely. Just at a time when we need more young graduates moving into these fields, just as private sector jobs are becoming increasingly precarious, Wages are eroding, and traditional middle-class, secure jobs are rapidly downsizing and descaling due to automation and global competition. A critical financial tool to expand the jobs pipeline into critical community service work is now being endangered. But as with many aspects of the safety net, this may be a case where conservatives just let a decent program crash and burn and laugh as social workers start to vanish from our communities and spiral into financial crisis themselves in many cases. The rest of us will be struggling out on our own, even more so than we were before, and we won't know what we got until it's gone. 
And that's it for this episode of Belabored 147. Check us out in another two weeks. And if you're in town in Chicago, uh, April 6th through 8th for the Labor Notes Conference, we will be there as well. We will be recording live and have a special episode for you afterwards. And you can also talk to us there. We'll be doing a panel. So please check it out at labornotes.org. And don't forget, you can catch us on Twitter at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And you can talk to us about what's going on in your workplace, in your union, and in your community. Looking forward. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.